Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Travers, and welcome to Popcorn, where we tell you what's happening in the pop culture. And my guest today, Michael Imperioli, who you know from The Sopranos, you may know now from his new TV series on ABC called Alex Inc., who does everything. The man's been in the theater, he writes plays, he acts in them, he directs them, he does everything in it, but he has never done uh, what he's going to talk about today, which was write a novel called The Perfume Burned His Eyes. This is the work of somebody who's not just written a book, but who's written it the way books should be written, with all the details right, so that the details become real, vibrant, and something that you think you've heard before, because it, in many ways it's a coming-of-age story, but you haven't heard it before because the specifics in it are something vibrant and alive. So I congratulate you on this book. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Thank you very much. And details are uh, very... Uh, it's the crux of everything, in a way. Isn't know? it? As an actor, it is, yeah. too. If your performance is going to work... Um, then basically you believe it because the specifics become something universal, don't they? Yeah, and making a, a specific choice about everything. It's, it, it, it's one of the things I really learned from David Chase, and he really drove that point home, mm -hmm. because if you really look at how he wrote and what The Sopranos is about, it, they're very specifically drawn details. Like if, if he wrote in a script... Uh, a pizza delivery boy shows up at Tony Soprano's house wearing a Brazil soccer jersey and a black baseball cap. On the day, when you're shooting that, there better be a Brazilian T-shirt and a black base. You know, mm -hmm. everything has a reason and a specificity. And, and, and you know, I was, I'm grateful that I worked with him to, uh, to get that point instilled in me, really. So you owe a lot to him in yeah, that way definitely. in doing it. Because what made you now decide to do this after your career as an actor, after your career as a playwright, working on stage? What made you say, I want to write a novel? Um, it's really two things. Reading fiction is a real love of my life, you know, and I spend a lot of time doing that. And, um, and you know, writing screenplays and teleplays also is something that I'm very passionate about. So... Uh, you wrote a few Sopranos. I wrote five of them, yeah. yeah. And then co-wrote Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. So, uh, and, and I wrote an ind independent movie called Hungry Ghost that I directed. But um, what happened was uh, there were several projects that I was trying to get off the ground, uh, series that I was writing and developing, and they didn't go for various reasons. And I was frustrated with the levels of you know, power structures on getting things through and getting things greenlit. And I wanted to... No, you're to kidding. <laughs> There's problems with that? No. The difficulty okay. and the struggle. No. And I just wanted to do something that would be an end unto itself that, did, that I could write and did not have to, besides getting a publisher, but did not have to, you know, because a screenplay, a teleplay is a guide, a blueprint. It's not an end unto itself, you know. It's a blueprint for a movie mm -hmm. or a TV show. So... I, there was something about, you know, the words being the end in itself that really appealed to me. Tell us a little bit, though, about what the book's about. I know that's a difficult thing for a writer, especially no. in this one, but if you can just give an outline of what it is. Yeah, it's, it is a coming-of-age story, and it's mm -hmm. about a 16-year-old boy who uh, lives in Jackson Heights in 1976, and in a short span of time, he loses both his father and grandfather for different reasons um, and the two 
male role models of his life. And his mother, in the midst of all her grief, inherits a little money from the fa- from the her from his grandfather, and they move to kind of a posh Upper East Side apartment. And even though it's only two miles or so away, it's a whole new world for this kid. Manhattan's very different than Jackson Heights, especially back then. And um, living in the same building is the great rock legend Lou Reed, uh, who was going through a particularly crazy, intense time of his life, but a very creatively fertile one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kid starts, you know, going through the natural uh, totems and, uh, you know, thresholds of manhood. You know, he's, he's maturing and becoming a man. And this uh, musician, artist, becomes like a quasi-father figure towards the kid. So, the, the question that leads to is... How much of this is you? Is any of it you? Did you happen to move into a place where Lou Reed actually was? No. Because I, I never did that. I moved in. Lou Reed was not there. <laughs> no, I, right. moved, I moved in a lot of places. He was never there. Although, <laughs> I lived in the village when in my 20s, and I, he did. And I used to see him wandering around, this, you know, the, mm-hmm. the village. But I got to know him a bit uh, in around 2000, 1999, and became friendly with him. But he was always a big hero of mine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, artistically, always. Um, so be- becoming friends with him was a very big deal to me. But I set out to write a coming-of-age story because it's uh, something that... Uh, when I was young, like Catcher in the Rye was a very big book for me as a mm-hmm. teenager. And Candide, which is not necessarily a coming-of-age story, it's more of a satire, but there are elements of that in it. Um, and it always appealed to me. And I had a son who was 16 at the time, mm-hmm. and he was going through his 16-year-old things, and I wanted to relate to that mind. So I started writing this character. And around the same time, Lou passed away. And it hit me in, you know, on, on several levels, both as a fan and, and someone who appreciated his work, but also as someone who knew him. Um, so I started seeing a way to bring him into the story and, and uh, put these two together. None of the events in the book are true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a 16-year-old boy once. I, di- <laughs> I did wind up coming to Manhattan from somewhere else. And Manhattan was a different world, but, you know, that's where the similarities really end. Your knowledge of Lou Reed, this friendship, came from where? When um, did this connection when did actually... I meet him? When did you meet well, him? Well, I actually met him around... Uh, well, I was tw- uh, around... Uh, in, 19, in the mid-90s. Uh, I don't think he knew who I was. I was at a Nick game. He was mm-hmm. he was on the escalator at Madison Square Garden. I was doing a movie called I Shot Andy Warhol. Right. And I went up to him, and Lou was not a fan of that, the fact that they were making that movie because it's about a woman who almost murdered his friend. Right. So I said, you know, I'm an actor and I'm doing this movie. I, I know you're, you know, not really happy about it. He goes, I think it's despicable that they're making a movie about this, you know horrible human being and I'm, I'm like I'm, I'm playing on Dean on Dean was one of the Warhol superstars yeah. the Chelsea girls he was one of the stars and a friend of Lou Reed's and I said I'm, I'm playing on Dean on Dean and he went good luck and he he walked away <laughs> and then we're on the escalators he turned away from me and then he just kind of looked over his shoulder like once or twice and then he went do your best and have a good time and 
remember, he was very, very funny and then turned away again. And that, that was the first time I met him. And then after The Sopranos hit, um, he was having a concert at the, uh, in New York and he had a new album out called Ecstasy. And I called my manager. I said, can, can I get tickets to see the show? It's sold mm-hmm. out. And they went through his publicist and we got tickets and there were two seats for me and my wife in the, in the balcony. And then after the show, his publicist came and said, Lou wants to, to meet you which I didn't know was happening and I didn't know that he knew I was there or who knew who I was or whatever. And we went backstage and he couldn't have been kinder, nicer, more warm. And um, and then, you know, we uh, saw each other, you know, a bunch of times over the years and did some... He was involved in Tibetan Buddhism, as was I, as am I now. But mm-hmm. uh, we did some benefits for Tibet... Um, Tibet House, uh, Tibet Fund, and he was a big supporter of the Jazz Found uh, Jazz Foundation. Yeah, so that's that's how that happened. It's it's almost unique in this genre of doing this kind of thing to have somebody like that because you're using this real figure. Right. Did you have somebody like that when you were 16 years old? When you were growing up, was was um, there somebody you looked up to had that impression on you? And and I, I know your parents, and what I read about it were actors in some way. My dad did community... Th- my dad was a bus driver in yeah. the Bronx. And then when he was 40, he started doing community theater, which d- definitely was a very influential way. Looking back on it, mm-hmm. very, very courageous yeah. thing to do. Okay, I'm 40 um, and I'm going to start. And then when I, I started producing theater when I was in my early 20s, and he did some uh, stuff with us, and then he did... He got a play at La Mama after that that he did with Jenny Lamette. I mean, he he's done some acting. Um, but also what he did, he, he took my brother and I to a lot of really cool movies. I mean, I saw movies probably a lot earlier than I should have as a boy, like Midnight Cowboy and Dog Day Afternoon. And so that explains a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Midnight Cowboy st- stuck, in, yeah. stuck in my head. I saw it when I was like maybe 11 or something. Mm-hmm. And when we got older... My brother and my dad and I used to watch it every Christmas Eve. So I, and I think there, you know, who needs it's a wonderful life? <laughs> but I, I worked with John Voight later on, and I told him that, and he said, that is really sweet. It's a little sick, but it's very sweet. <laughs> it's not, you know, yeah, it's not. I have it's to a try that life. on Christmas Eve one time. Yeah, just I, don't, I don't know how that evolved. Cowboy is going to roll, you know. Right. <laughs> What were you? What made you start to say to yourself, "I want to do this. I want to be yeah. in this kind of arts world." I think it was being, a, you know, seeing that kind of work and that, those those actors like John Voight and Dustin Hoffman and uh, uh, Al Pacino and, and and those guys and and it, there was some there was something in the characters that they played, like particularly like Dog Day Afternoon, where there was this. One guy against the world, it always seemed. You know? Um, like Midnight Cowboy, these two very oddball characters mm-hmm. kind of against the world, like these underdogs against the outside forces. I think something about that really appealed to me. And I just thought about it yesterday. There's definitely an element of that in this book, like Midnight Cowboy and that feeling of that kind of, you know, journey through the demimonde of New York, you know. So the friends you were growing up with, did they think this was a weird thing for you to do? Um, not weird, but just um, probably on the road to failure, you know, something that <laughs> yeah. would never really come to fruition, you know. 
Like my grandfather, yeah, he was always like, he used to call me Clark Gable, you know, because okay, sure, yeah. I wasn't very handsome, you know, 17-year-old, and he's like, his idea of an actor was Clark Gable, you know, who's <laughs> this romantic leading guy. He's like, an actor? You can, That's you know. not you. <laughs> no. <laughs> He was right on some level. <laughs> what do you do in this? Right, right. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, but, um, but you find your way, you know. I think it's important to find, like, a peer group and, and to find your own way to work and not just, you know, be when, at the mercy of the industry. Which actors in general are. You know, yeah, it's you got to, you've got to be offered a job unless you're writing it yeah. for yourself, and then you've got to basically get the financing to do it. Right. So everything is that problem. Right. You know, people that hear your name and do it are going to think of The Sopranos right away. Right. But I always think of Goodfellas because you'll always be Spider to me. Too. Right. Yeah. Always, I that mean, was really the beginning. Yeah. That helped. That kind of gave me a career. That, and and that's that Scorsese. That's um, a pretty good beginning. It was. Yeah. It was. Um, you know, for an Italian-American kid who grew up in, you know, New York and uh, to work with those guys, that was like going to play with the Yankees, you know, <laughs> as a kid. You know, really, in the World Series, you know, gang- Scorsese doing a gangster movie with Robert De Niro. That's like, whoa. I mean, it was um, it's pretty wild, you know. Well, it's great because Joe Pesci shoots you in the foot. It's, it's something so um, frightening and memorable right. where that happens because you don't understand what he's asking you for when for a drink right. you know yeah. and he's it's just, like he's just crazy he, yeah. he's doing that <laughs> so what was the time in your life when you start acting that you thought to yourself i can do this when scorsese cast me and um i shot two days two scenes one uh, two consecutive days and after the two days i was like those are the you know those were my heroes you know and I'm like okay something happened these two days yeah I definitely felt it well it's a very funny story when I got shot when I got killed in that movie Mm -hmm. right in the second scene I had a glass in my hand because I'm a waiter and I did my own stunt of falling backwards falling into the bar and hitting the ground and the glass was real they didn't put a they didn't have a breakaway for some reason but so two of my fingers got cut really badly um and i went to the hospital but i had bullet holes in my chest and blood everywhere so <laughs> queen we, hospital in queens they think i'm about to die <laughs> it's my finger they think it's some drug hit and i'm trying to explain to the the people that no it's my hand i'm okay and they, they think i'm delirious they don't know what's going on they bring me in on a gurney finally they start examining me they see all the squibbing in the wires like oh 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 it's your they take me up and make me sit in the corner for four hours so they could stitch me but here's the point so when you get made into the mafia right Mm -hmm. they cut prick your finger and they take the blood and put it on the picture of a saint and then they burn it that's the mafia Mm -hmm. induction ceremony and then i always said well i have these scars on my finger my fingers were cut. The blood came out on a Martin Scorsese gangster movie with Robert De Niro. So you're yeah. made. It's symbolic, right? That was the it ceremony, is symbolic. right? It yeah. is symbolic. Yeah. When, 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 it, it's kind of a frightening story. Yeah. You know, why didn't they have that? There'd be huge things now about it. But when you do The, uh, the Sopranos, something happens to your career where it takes off. It's like the breakthrough part. Yeah, it was a very... I mean, I... 
after Goodfellas and a couple other things, people would recognize me once in a while, and there was I started working consistently. Mm-hmm. But Sopranos was a whole other level of visibility and that kind. You know, what are your memories of it now when you think of it? It's been off for uh, I guess it's been off for ten, 10 years. years. Yeah. Um, see, I knew a lot of those people before The Sopranos because mm-hmm. in the New York film TV community is actually very small compared to Los Angeles and. The Italian-American community is even smaller. So a lot of those actors I had worked with. Um, and the ones I hadn't worked, like I knew Edie Falco, I knew John Ventimiglia and Sharon Angel from acting school, I knew Sirico and Vinnie Pastor, uh, so, and Lorraine from Goodfellas. So, um, and the ones I didn't know, we got to know very well. Mm-hmm. So that, was, that show was like going down the corner and hanging out with your friends in some respects. And it was... Uh, and we all kind of it all kind of happened for us at the same time together mm-hmm. so it was um, very very special I remember your Emmy speech when you when you won Best Supporting Actor and thanking everybody there but at the end you did something for a movie geek like myself that I loved you shouted out to John Cassavetes you oh, said yeah. that John Cassavetes was somebody who inspired and amazes by what his work can live on yeah. and do that my favorite filmmaker yeah and I see a little even I see him in this book too oh that's which hasn't cool. become that film that's cool yeah I he really amazes me and I got to work with um, Ben Gazzara. Seymour Cassell is a very good friend of mine. I worked with him. We became close. Uh, I knew Peter Falk and I dis- and Al Ruban I met. So I, I, ta- I discussed Cassavetes a lot with mm-hmm. him. And what I really learned is that he's very underrated as a writer because the scripts were not just... Imp- you know, the movies are not just improv fest. They everybody were, thinks they are. Everybody yeah. thinks they mm-hmm. are. And they all said the same thing, that they were, they were very, very tight. And I've seen some, some of the screenplays. They were very tightly written and mm-hmm. well-written. Mm-hmm. And maybe out of everything, he was most underrated as a writer. Well, this is the first time you've been on this show. And so you don't know we always end in song a little bit. Now, you had a, a band, didn't you? I did, yeah. What was it called? Uh, it was called La Dolce Vita, yeah, uh, and then it was we changed the name at some point, but yeah, one time it was La, I did have a band. Yeah, well, can you give me a little bit of some song that's in, and then it could even be tiptoe through the tulips for all I care. To sing, but it? all we need is just a little bit. I can of you. quote it or something. I don't. Well, I can't do, sing. I mean, no, on, nobody on can. Camera. That's on. They do it. Clint no. Eastwood doesn't sing, but he sang for me. We, all we, we all we look for is just a little bit of something. A little bit song of that's in your head. Do I have to sing it? Or can I just recite it? You can recite it, but if you can, I'm sure you, who poetically wrote this, will find something musical. I'm going to quote the title of the book, which we did already, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'll give the whole thing. And it's uh, the perfume burned his eyes, holding tightly to her thighs, and something flickered for a minute, and then it vanished and was gone. I thought that was musical, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good luck with everything. Thanks for having me.